Let's turn now, friends, as the Lord would help us, to the um, last portion we read in Genesis um, 11. And we're going to look at the story of the Tower of Babel. This is one of the well-known stories of the Old Testament. But perhaps we tend to be too content with reading the bare narrative on the page of Scripture and seeing only what is obvious in that narrative. Whereas in reality, this story goes far, far beyond the men building a tower in defiance of God and indeed being judged for it. In fact, it's my own view that this is one of the most up-to-date stories in the entire Old Testament scriptures. And I think it has more application today than ever before. And I mean that literally. Now, to appreciate this, we must, first of all, briefly survey the events that took place from the beginning of history and indeed briefly before history itself. Now, uh, the question is often asked, and I possibly have asked this question before, preaching to you as a congregation. And that question is, when and why was Satan expelled from heaven. Now, the best answer that I have ever come across regarding that question is that the reason he was expelled and all his minions with him was that the angels were privy to the discussion that took place within the Trinity regarding the decision to send the Son of God as the Savior King, and that this Son of God would be known as the Angel of the Covenant, and that he would, when he would visit the earth that was about to be created, that he would establish God's kingdom on that earth. And evidently, so the theory goes, and I have no reason to disagree with this because I've never heard a better explanation for it. When this became known amongst the angels, it triggered intense jealousy, especially in the angel we now know as Satan. And Satan stirred up multitudes of other angels to follow him in a rebellion against God. And we know that these angels were expelled from heaven. Now, on their expulsion, and as soon as God uh, finished his work of creation, and especially when the man made in the image of God appeared, Satan began making his opposition and his hatred to God known. He immediately waged war 
frequently using humans in the process. War against God, war against the people of God, and war against the kingdom of God. Now we'll keep that as a background to what we are going to look at in the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, meanwhile, from the time of Adam to the time of Noah, God was careful to do two things. One, he made sure that there would be a dual thread. In one, he would preserve a seed for himself. There's always been a seed of the people of God ever since the Garden of Eden, and there will be until the end of time, always, without a break. Even in those periods of history of which we know very little, such as the uh, intertestamental periods between Malachi and Matthew. Even in those 400 years, God was silent, but this thread was always there, a seed of God's people always lived on this earth. That's one thing God did from Adam. The other thing he did was he, after the debacle in the Garden of Eden and the expulsion of Adam, God then was slowly withdrew from humanity and left man to his own devices left him to his own devices. And as we read from Genesis 1 up to Genesis 6, we see humanity degenerating, degenerating into sheer evil. So by the time of Moses, listen to what we read. It's a verse that is very familiar to most of you. Genesis 6 verse 5. Now, listen carefully to these words. We read words like this so quickly, we don't think about them enough. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. What an appalling state for humanity and for the world that God had created perfectly. And then, of course, came the judgment of the flood. Now, when life resumed after the flood, it's important to notice that God repeated to Noah the command he had given to Adam in the first place. It's as if God rewound the tape to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The exact words that he had used for Adam in, or to Adam in the first place. Now, the idea in both instances, with Adam and with Noah, is that man would inhabit the entire world, bringing glory to God through obedience and through worship. That was God's plan for this world and for humanity 
And these are some of the reasons why we should laugh at the suggestion that these vain scientists are searching and spending billions of dollars and pounds searching for life on other planets. This is the only planet upon which you will find life that has any meaning at all. Now, that's where we pick up the story of Babel with its infamous tower. That's the background. Satan and his minions seething against God, still shaking a fist at heaven. And we see this very early on in the story of humanity, where we watch Adam and Eve in that precious garden, and there is Satan shaking his fist at God in the form of a serpent speaking to man. Now, the worst indication of the enmity in Satan's heart towards God is, of course, what took place 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. Now, the building of this tower is one of many instances and one of many ways by which Satan uses men and women, young and old, to defy God and to vainly try to dethrone God. That is his ambition. Impossible, we know. But that is what he always wants to do, to dethrone God. So let's consider the relevancy of this story then, in connection with all of that. Let's look, first of all, at this character called Nimrod, of whom we read in chapter 10. Now, in this thread that God ensured existed, from Garden of Eden to the Flood and after the Flood, the thread emerged in the two sons of Noah, Ham and Shem. Now, sadly, in the aftermath of the Flood, most people seem to have followed Ham. Most of them seem to have followed Ham. But Ham was an evil man, as was his son, Cush, as was Cush's son, Nimrod. Chapter 10, verse 8. Now, we're talking here about only three generations after the flood. Three generations. They're still talking about the flood. And yet, despite that judgment, man is still determined to shake the fist at heaven and to defy God. So this man, Nimrod, became the devil incarnate. He went from being, chapter, nine, verse, chapter 10, verse 9, from being a mighty hunter to becoming the first antichrist in the history of this world. And a tool in Satan's hand, Nimrod 
begun building a kingdom that would outdo the kingdom of God on earth. Chapter 10, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. So instead of obeying God's mandate to scatter and to populate the earth, Nimrod, you will notice, he did the exact opposite. He gathered as many people around himself as he possibly could to create this kingdom that he hoped would outdo the kingdom that was given to God's son to create on the earth. And by the way, all of this happened in what we would today call modern Iraq, the, the geographic, rough geographic location of it. But this wasn't to be a mere political kingdom on the part of Nimrod. There was also here a display of primitive human ingenuity and innovation demonstrated in the building of this tower that we have come to know as the Tower of Babel. And you will notice, and I think it's worth noting, I haven't got time to go into this, but it is worth noting, this was very, very early on in history. But you'll notice the substantial nature of this tower. It's built, it's built not from stones, not from mud, it's built from brick. In verse 3, there's a lot embedded in those words. And furthermore, the empire which Nimrod began building, in principle, it continues in every age of history at various levels throughout the world. Ambitious politicians, callous dictators, ruthless entrepreneurs, they're always seeking after empire building. And far too often, it is done in defiance of the living God. And it has to be said that few pursued empire building as vigorously as our country, Great Britain. That's what the great meant in Great Britain. At one stage, it used to be said that the sun never set on Great Britain and its kingdoms, so large was the kingdom of Great Britain. It prospered. The British Empire prospered as long as it acknowledged the living God. But when that empire turned its back on God, what happened? It crumbled. And we stand on the page of history today, my friends, witnesses of a crumbled mighty empire, simply because they turned their back on God. Well, here's Nimrod so very ambitious, so very ambitious, but he's setting himself up for a fall. He has to be, because he too turns his back on God. 
You see, Nimrod, my friends, was like so many people in this world. He was a prisoner to evil. A prisoner to evil. And as God watched from heaven, and God watches everything from heaven, he saw this man spreading that evil like a virus. And to defy God as much as he possibly could, he planned on this Shinar becoming a godless state. Much as the Kims of North Korea are insisting that their state is a godless state. And the capital of this nation was to be Babel, later on to become Babylon. Later still, as we read in uh, Revelation 17, it's depicted for us as Babylon the Great, mother of harlots, abomination of the earth. Oh, what a reputation Babylon has. Meanwhile, <clears throat> in Nimrod's Babel, the heart and the center and the focal point was this tower. And God recognized the progress and the ingenuity displayed in the building of this tower. He saw that it was amazing, but it was at the same time godless at root. Now, for Nimrod, it was a bonus for him to discover, as we read in verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and one speech. That was a bonus for him. You see, when people are of one language and one speech, they are easier to control. Easier to control. And God saw that this was a contributing factor in the project that Nimrod had undertaken in creating this uh, uh, state of his, this kingdom of his. And that's why the judgment mentioned in verse 7 poured down upon them. God looked at that oneness of speech and language and he turned it upside down. Their language became a babble. They weren't understanding each other. And that reminds us, my friends, how God often judges people by the very thing they consider to be their strength and the very thing that they tend to boast in. Isn't that one of the lessons that we learn, my friends, from the New Testament? When we read in Romans chapter 1 about the deviations in intimate relationships, what did God do? He judged them according to those deviations. Romans 1 verse 27. They receive in themselves the recompense of their error which was made. In other words, the consequences of their immorality becomes their penalty. Now I said to you that this is a very contemporary story in our modern world. And I'm saying that because much of this, of what's happening here, 
is echoing through the Western world as we speak. Look at ourselves in Scotland here today. The land of Presbyterianism, the land of the gospel, the land of revivals. We could match Geneva of Calvin's day. What is it today? It's a Shinar. It's a Babylon. It's a Sodom. Our government supports the United Nations policy. Do you know what that policy is? Do you know why the United Nations are called the United Nations? The policy is to create one godless state throughout the world. The United Nations. And they're insisting on reducing all religions to a common denominator so that all religions can live side by side. In other words, a godless state. Maybe not in the sense of North Korea. But if you're going to reduce the Christian religion, for example, to the lowest common denominator on par with other religions, you haven't got a God. You haven't got a religion. You haven't got a gospel. You haven't got a church. Our political agendas, particularly in Scotland, over the past few years, are without question atheistic in nature. Hence, evil is declared good and good is declared evil. Part of our Bible, my friends, is forbidden in public statements. Our first minister is boasting that the SNP is the most pro-homosexual government on the face of the earth. We have become a veritable Babylon. And then there's this uncanny echo of God's enemies gaining strength from one language. Have you noticed this coming into your life? Into the life of your children? Into the life of our society? This one language? Not English? Not French? Not Germany? It's called a politically correct language. And by this language, numerous evil practices are being promoted right under our nose. By this language, conservative discourse is being turned into hate speech right under our nose. And this school of thought has gathered around this one language just like they gathered around Nimrod and his tower and the unity he found in that oneness of speech. The same thing is happening today, my friends, at a different level. And that's why I'm saying, in part at least, 
This story is more relevant today than ever before. I have to move on. Let's look at building this tower in verse 4. Go to, let's build us a city and a tower. Now, all of this, uh, this oneness, this unity, made everything so much easier for Nimrod. He, he controlled the people because of this unity of language and speech. Now, he chose the location uh, very carefully because Shinar lay geographically between the Tigris River on one side and the Euphrates River on the other side. And this provided him with primitive building materials in abundance. Look at verse 3 again. Brick for stone and slime for mortar. This was clay and a, a tar-like substance, which was there in abundance. Now, Nimrod, although he's not mentioned here, he's the architect. He's the engineer behind this project, this infamous tower. And it was designed to outdo every other structure people knew at that time. Look at verse 4. Whose top may reach to heaven. Now, despite the doubtless hyperbole here, this would have been the highest structure these people had ever seen. But I think it's important for us to understand Nimrod wasn't here trying to reach heaven. He wasn't trying to get to God. No, he was in competition with God. Satan was using him to teach God a lesson. And the lesson was this. We don't need God. We can manage fine on our own. We can get by on our own ingenuity. Look at his proud philosophy. Here in the middle of verse 4. Let us make us a name. In every culture you will find famous structures named after their builder or after the designer. And what man is saying by insisting on his name being put in, I did this by my own hand. Well, Nimrod declared his intention for this enterprise. Verse 4 again. Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of of the whole earth. In other words, lest we be forced to do what God wants us to do. So the tower becomes a symbol of Nimrod's defiance of God and the defiance of those who followed him. Now, meanwhile, we should notice here the shift in Satan's usual strategy. What is his strategy? His usual strategy, divide, scatter, and conquer. That's Satan's usual uh, strategy when he is active amongst men and women, boys and girls, and especially when it comes to Christian communities. This is how he breaks up families. This is how he breaks up churches. This is how he breaks up entire societies. Dividing, scattering, confusing. 
But here, for his own pragmatic reasons, he reverses that policy. You see, it's anything to defy God. So he pushed Nimrod to oppose God's command, and he issued his own. Let's make us a name, lest we be scattered, lest we be compelled to do what God wants us to do. Let's make us a name. Meanwhile, God was observing all of this from heaven, and he decided the time came to visit. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. And immediately recognized that Nimrod's strength, in part at least, lay in the unity of the people and their ability to communicate because of the oneness of language. Verse 6, the people is one and they all have one language. But here's what's particularly disturbing and particularly contemporary for us. God also saw that this tower would not exhaust the ingenuity of man. Look at the second part of verse 6. Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Oh, my friends, there are few statements in the Bible more disturbing than these words in contemporary terms. Nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. The history, my friends, of humanity is a display of man's insatiable lust after grandeur, power, and reputation. Every generation shows it like a flag flying high over them. So when man's imagination is let loose, my friends, if it is unrestrained by moral principle, there is no telling what the result will be or what the cost will be to the world and to the church. And that, my friends, is where the story collides with our modern world. Much of today's science and technology is the fulfillment of those words in the middle of verse 6. Nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In the last 40 years in particular, man's ingenuity and man's enterprise has taken this world deep, 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 into dangerous and forbidden territory. Don't misunderstand me. I am not criticizing progress. I'm not criticizing ingenuity. We are thankful for all the progress that will better the human condition. We're thankful for all of it. 
But we should also, my friends, be fearful of the reckless and godless side of that progress. Like Nimrod, many in science and technology today, they are acting as if they were God Almighty. There seems to be no limit, my friends, to what man can achieve these days, exactly as God said. Nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Consider three what we call technological giants of our day, or tech giants. Google, Amazon, and Facebook. These are today's towers of Babel. They are filling our every horizon. They are controlling world events and controlling our lives to a staggering degree. And in terms of power, they are out of control. Out of control. But they're not out of God's control. They remain, just like Nimrod, accountable to the God of heaven and the God of this earth. I have to move on to look at God's judgment, verse 7. Let us go down and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, the plural pronoun, the pronoun here shouldn't be lost on us. We saw this in Genesis chapter 1, at the creation of humanity. The entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved in the creation of that man. Let us make man in our image. Well, that entire Trinity is equally offended by the conduct of humanity in this instance. Now, exactly how God managed to scatter all of these people, I don't know. It doesn't say. He's sovereign over all situations and all the circumstances. His narrative simply states in verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. I read that to you again. The Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of all the earth. They are now where God wanted them to be in the first place. And not only that, you will notice from 80, verse 8 that Nimrod's project and his ambitions died a death. This great mighty man crumbles into the dust. They left off to build the city. And not only so, but God judge, God's judgment continues. When they emerged from this judgment, they couldn't understand one another. This is, by the way, is where we get the word babble from. They were just babbling to each other. And this scattering and, and the, the um, confusion of language 
This is the beginning of the nations and cultures and languages of the earth. But I, I have to move on. What about Nimrod? What was the outcome for him? What was the punishment for him? One thing is sure, my friends. There was no escape for him. And there'll be no escape for you. Nobody can escape from God. In terms of history, no more has heard of him. He disappears from the page of history altogether. But you know, friends, sometimes biblical silence actually speaks volumes. Volumes. As an antichrist opposed to God, this man went like Judas Iscariot after him, another antichrist. Do you remember the phrase used for the eternal demise of that wretched man? He went to his own place. There's no prizes for guessing, my friends, what that meant. And that was the end of Nimrod. But be that as it may, what lessons are we to learn from all of this? We have already mentioned in this sermon the three towers in our modern world, Google, Amazon, and Facebook. There are many more, and I suspect many more yet to come. Let me consider just briefly, because it is um, applicable to the contemporary situation. Let me highlight the tower we know as social media platform or platforms. You see, friends, and this is of particular significance to young people, God created man in his own image. And one of the implications of that is that man needs to live in community. He's a reflection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal fellowship of the triune God. And that's reflected in man's need to live in community. On social media, people are impersonal. Boys and girls are invisible. And frequently anonymous. They live in a parallel universe. Today, most people under 30 years of age, they don't meet their peers for coffee. No. They network online. There are hordes and hordes and hordes of young people, my friends, in this very town, in this very island, and throughout our nation. And they exist 
And that's all they do. They exist in the isolated world of Facebook, Twitter, and all the rest of them. The most common problem with young people who network online is a sense of isolation, loneliness. Nimrod created his Babylon. Big tech companies have created a cyber world, a parallel universe to the rest of us, or where the rest of us live. Are we the better for this cyber world? What do you think? How can we be? Listen, young people, how can we be? The world of Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of them is a world without feelings and without emotions. It's an existence where nobody cares about your tears. Nobody cares about your sorrows. Nobody cares about your fears. Not really. I've always thought that Facebook was an ironic title because it's an organization that caters for a faceless existence. But more worrying still, and this is where I would urge parents to take note of this. In this cyber world of big tech giants, the minds of your children, if they are exposed to these social media platforms, it is Google and Facebook and Twitter that are molding the minds of your children. They are teaching them how to think and how to assess life. It used to be the family, it used to be the parents, it used to be the school, it used to be the church, but not now. Oh no, it's social media platforms. And because of that, my friends, many of those who subscribe to these platforms are becoming increasingly increasingly sympathetic to a lifestyle that is alien to God and alien to the teaching of the Bible. So the spirit of Nimrod is more alive today than at any time in history. However, let me close with this. All the empires of big tech will sooner or later come tumbling down, just like Nimrod's Tower of Babel. Because there is only one empire that will endure, my friends. The empire over which the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you were singing about this a moment ago in Psalm 100 and 
45. Thy kingdom has no end at all. And any and every competitor to that kingdom will sooner or later crumble into the dust of time and history. You were also singing about that in Psalm 102. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. And in Christ's kingdom, living in the indestructible tower that is the Christian church, Men and women and boys and girls, you can live happily. You can find purpose and direction. You will know the love of God in your lives. You will begin to appreciate more and more why you are here. Your very purpose of your existence on this earth. But most significant of all, my friends, you will know the eternal destiny that God has planned for you. Be you child, be you adult, be you an old person. Your sins will be forgiven in this kingdom. Your destiny secure. Love and obedience to God is the main diet in this wonderful kingdom. Friendship and companionship with God and with Christ and with fellow believers will be your fellowship. Peace, blessed peace, is the reward that God promises you. So let me urge you once again, make sure that this is the kingdom you are living in, not in the parallel universe of the cyber world that has become so obsessively popular in our day and generation. Put God first, young people especially. Put God and the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost before you get swallowed up by the parallel universe that is all around you and gaining more power and influence by the day. Let's pray. We thank thee, gracious God, that thou art the ruler of the universe, that thou art the God who sits upon the circle of the earth, and men at their best, at their greatest, at their most powerful, they are mere grasshoppers. They are mere worms of the dust. But thou art able to take us, O Lord. Thou art able to fashion and mold our minds so that we can seek to be like Christ and ultimately to be with Christ, which will be far better for us. Remember us in mercy. Preserve us by thy grace. Deliver us by thy spirit, and thou shalt have the glory forever in Jesus. Amen.